I want to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you're new or haven't been around for the last number of weeks, maybe just visiting with us, let me help you by telling you why we're turning to Romans 5. We've spent a number of months teaching through the book of Romans. I believe that it is bar none the most influential, the most important letter ever penned in human history, that it has a greater impact on the history of the world than any other thing communicated in an earthly sense. Now, we know, of course, that the Apostle Paul had some help. He was superintended by the Holy Spirit, very breath of God into these words. But the impact of him glorying in the gospel and us trying to understand and then to grasp what he has grasped, and that is, is that we can be reconciled to God, put back right with God, that when we get it, that this has an impact like nothing else that we could read. Where we're at now is in the middle of the fifth chapter. I'm going to begin reading in the fifth verse of the fifth chapter. And as I pick it up, Paul has transitioned completely from describing the problem with humanity, our sin, and he has turned to God's solution, the way that God intended to fix this problem, the only way that it would possibly work, and that is that God himself came and lived a perfect life, the kind of righteous life that you and I needed to live but never could, that that same Jesus went to the cross and died a sacrificial death to absorb the wrath of God. He took on the punishment that all of us deserved and would receive apart from his sacrifice. And then finally that this same Jesus overcame the grave, proving that he was God, proving that we had been reconciled and that he now lives eternally, inviting us to the same life that he now enjoys. He has described this as a principle, and now he is taking time to go back and to meet every objection and to glory in each of the bits of truth. What I'm going to read now from verse 5 through 11, what I want us to look for is I would describe this as Paul inviting us to see and to answer a question that is very, very important. This question, how do I know if God loves me? You know, it's a good transition from a child dedication, because one of the first things that we teach children, at least one of the first things that I was taught, is the truth of the gospel in a song that goes something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little one, you know the rest of it, right? Maybe you had some different verses, so that's how mine went. But here's the, here's the interesting thing about that. That song, for many of us in experience, can be a little bit overconfident. Jesus loves me, this I know. What a statement. This I know, I am sure of, I'm certain of, I experience, I grasp onto, I hold on. And the question becomes, as we're reading, and I think what Paul wants to convince us of, is to answer this question, does God love me? How does he love me? How do I know that I'm loved by God? And that's what he's hoping to answer in these verses of Romans chapter 5. Does God love us? Do you know it experientially, 
from the depths of your soul? Do you know it? That's the question that's put forward. I'm going to begin reading in the fifth verse. And we read this at the end of last week when Brian taught, but I'm going to pick it up again, and then we're going to go down through verse 11. It says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. I'm going to pause there. I'm going to pray for a moment that God helps us to understand this, and then we'll consider it together. God, help us to understand these words. It is our hope, our desire. And I believe that at the depth of our being, when we're not distracted or doubting or pulled in different directions, that we all deeply desire and to know the settled, confirmed, convictional love of God. We need to know, we're desperate to know that you receive us, that we're okay. And so I ask that you would use these words and use my words to help us here. Spirit of God, would you rest on us? Fill in the gaps with your mercy, the things that we won't see, because we're not bright enough, we're not impressive enough. Spirit of God, would you please convince us and show us this very real love of God. I pray that especially for those who are suffering or discouraged or feel lost. Father, would you pour out your love? I pray that for the cold-hearted, for those who generally live life rather emotionless, would you break through? God, I, I know I need help. I believe that we need your help, so Spirit, come, give us eyes and big ears for us to hear, to listen, and to know. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As Paul has been consistent in doing throughout Romans, he's stacking up arguments. It's a very legal-like document. He's consistently using for, because, therefore, one argument stacked on top of the other. The reason I went back to verse 5 here is because verse 6 starts with the word for, gar in Greek. He's using it over and over and over again. He makes a statement, and then he says for, or following, or because, and that idea of him making an argument strictly and solely to convince the reader that God loves them in a way that they could never imagine is what Romans 5, 5 to 11 is about. And he's going to use three different arguments here I think that we need to, to look at carefully to convince us. Some of us may more naturally lean one way or the other to be convinced of God's love for us, but I believe that there are at least these proofs that God loves us. 
I'm going to use these headings, right? So we're going to think about them in these headings. How do I know God loves me? And I think what Paul's going to argue is these three headings. We need to consider the unconditional nature of God's love. That God's love is unconditional, and that's supposed to convince us that he really does love us. Second, we need to be convinced, as under this heading, that God loves us in an objective sense. That something happened in history. There's an objective, fact-based reality that invites us to consider that God loves us, to help us know that we're loved. And then finally, I think that Paul wants us to see there's a subjective nature of the love of God. That on top of the unconditional nature of his love and the, the objective nature of his love that God actually determines and wants us to know at a subjective level that we're loved, that we're invited in, that he's for us. You know, Christmas is coming, and I always think about what an amazing thing it is that, that God is with us, that he, he came, and he's joined us, and he's been a part of the earth, but the reality is, is that God is going to come in wrath one day as well, so just that he came is not enough. It's only good news that he came if he loves us, and he's for us, and he's moving toward us to bless, and I think that God wants us to experience and to know subjectively that he's for us. So those are the big headings. Hopefully you got them. I don't know if you're a note taker or not, but maybe at least it'll organize your brain a little bit. This is what Paul wants us to, convince, to be convinced of first, the unconditional nature of the love of God. You see, Paul knows that all of us are cynical, that all of us are self-interested. And it may very well be that we think this whole dying on the cross thing, Jesus coming for us, the gospel itself could be a sort of quid pro quo. A little scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or perhaps it was a we earned it kind of thing. But there must be something in it for God. And what he's going to insist upon, what Paul's going to insist upon over and over, not once, not twice, but three times, he's going to describe the nature of our condition when Christ died for us to show us that none of us were worthy, none of us were impressive, none of us were offering something to God. There wasn't some sort of wink-wink whereby God was moved to die finally because he was cajoled into it by our awesomeness. Three times Paul's going to insist on this refrain. This is the word, this is how we get tipped off. This is the word that scripture uses to show us the unconditional nature of the love of God. And I think it's, most, it's supposed to make us stop and say, wow, he loves us like that. Here's the word. Wow. While. While. I said wow. While. While what? Well, let's look at a few of them together. Verse 6. For while we were still weak. While we were still weak. What kind of people did God move toward and love? The weak ones. And what kind of people did Christ die for? The ungodly. So verse 6 shows us that it is not the impressive that Jesus dies for, that God's love is so big that he even moves towards people who are not all that impressive, those who are weak and ungodly. All of us, I believe, could be skeptical. We love to love people who are easy to love. But we all know how difficult it can be to love those who are weak and needy or ungodly. Do you have a person in mind? Don't name names. Have you ever felt that tension where you think to yourself, this would be so much easier if I liked you? Look, I know I'm supposed to love that person in my class, but does God know how obnoxious they are? 
What can they offer me? And the moment that that kind of exchange, that equation starts to be worked out in our hearts and minds, we know intuitively that love has been removed from the picture. When you are calculating cost-benefit analysis and you move to only towards those who will benefit you, then that is a very shallow kind of love. So, first argument Paul makes is, he says, no, 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 note this. Look how God loved while we were still weak. While we were still weak and ungodly. And then, in order to double down on it, he goes back in verse 8 and he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who did Christ die for? Who did he move toward? Not the righteous, not the impressive, not those who had it put together, but sinners. And he died for us not after we got cleaned up, but right in the moment of our deepest need, right when we were the most obnoxious, right when we were the most rebellious. It was in this moment that we receive the love of God in his death for us. He's not done. He keeps piling up these words. We're going to be tipped off one more time in verse 10. For if while, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Not once, not twice, but three times while we were, and then here's the list of words. This is the kind of people that God moved toward and died for. He gave up the most costly thing, and these are the kind of people that he was giving up cost for. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. And then Paul just reflects on this. He, he puts an interjection in there. If, if we couldn't quite figure it out, he says, now, isn't this amazing? Can you imagine a love like that? Isn't it amazing, he says? Because, you know, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You know, like, I like you. You're okay. But I don't know if I'd die for you. You're not that impressive. And Paul's reflecting here, and he says, you know, there would be a kind of love. I can imagine a righteous person can imagine someone being motivated to get to the point where they say to themselves, well, that person might be more worth it than me, or I'll give up myself for them because they can accomplish more, that perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But get this, get the unconditional nature of the love of God. While these people were weak and ungodly and enemies and sinners, that's when Christ died for them. The cost-benefit analysis was all off. You might say to God, what was in it for you? What were you possibly gaining by gathering to yourself a motley crew like this? Well, Paul is going to tell us, it's a demonstration of the consistent, persistent, unconditional love of God. People like this are who Christ died for. And I would also say that it's one of the reasons that we invite people to confess their sins. Every week when we go through the liturgy, you just heard Tim, he's leading through, he confesses that we're sinners, we read a passage of scripture about the forgiveness of sins. Why do Christians constantly focus on and think about sins? Hopefully, we're focusing on our own sins. The reason we love to repent of our sins is because that is when we are sure that Christ is most for us. What kind of pe people did Christ die for? Well, it doesn't say the strong. So you've been trying your whole life to be strong and impressive in God's sight and in man's sight? Well, the Bible says Christ died for weak people. 
What kind of people did Christ die for? Out of his own words, he said, I came for the sick. It's only the sick who need a physician. Here, Paul says, he died for the ungodly. How do you get in on this? Well, you have to confess that you're ungodly. You've never been nearer to the love of God than when you finally can confess or commit to the reality that you are not as godly as you are putting on. You might think to yourself, well, I could be worthy of the love of God if I just get my life together. So there are scores of people who say to themselves, well, I'm not very impressive right now, but if I just get through these next few months and stop sinning in these ways, and if I could just brush up this area, if I learn to pray a little bit better with more religious-sounding words, if I served for a while, if I could just get cleaned up in the right way and finally walk in so I didn't have to look like so much of a sinner, then God would receive me. But Paul says, no, listen to the unconditional love of God. He loved you. He died for you. He gave up the greatest cost and moved toward you the most that he possibly could exactly when you were still a sinner. So if you're waiting to get cleaned up, to come and cast yourself upon him, you are forfeiting love that he offers to you in the very moment of your sin. It's unconditional. Finally, You might say to yourself, well, I'm not worthy of the love of God because I am anti-God. I think he's a farce. I think he is not worth respecting. You know what's amazing? Jesus died for the very ones who mocked him. Scripture says the very ones who pierced him, he died for them. He prays for those who are mocking him and putting him to death, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The very enemies of God. It's as though God says, in the face of my love, my unconditional love is so powerful, I don't care if you're an atheist. I mean, he cares, of course. In the end, confess and believe. Don't tweet or talk that or whatever you do. You know what I mean? Or take it. The point is, is that settled enemies of God are not outside of his penetrating, consistent, devastating, unconditional love. Sworn enemies. That's how God loves. I think of myself and how petty I am. One small little slight. I'm out. I'm uncomfortable. I can't keep up this farce. That's how I feel in my soul. You watch the Bulls documentary about the 98 season? Jordan consistently makes up enemies. If you did something, he hated you and you were his enemy. If you didn't do anything, he hated you and you're his enemy. Smallest little slights. And God says, I love them straight through it. So one of the most awe-inspiring aspects of the love of God is its unconditional nature. And until you've grasped that, until you've confessed that you need love like that, you won't know the love of God. You'll have maybe heard of the love of God or you could think about it, but to know it, you need to experience the fact that he loves you straight through the worst parts of who you are, even when you're a sworn enemy. So he goes on, though. That's just the first point that he's making. I think it's the main one that he makes. That's why we started with it. He says, while, while, while. 
But second, Paul's going to convince us and say, you know what, there's an objective reality, something that happened in fact that shows the love of God. And that is this, that in real time, in real time, Jesus died for us. So if we would say to God, well, I know you feel like that. I know that there's enemies or there's weak or the ungodly and you're being patient. But how do I know you really mean it? Well, there are two great objective truths rooted in history that show us the love of God. This is what verse 8 says. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His death while we were sinners shows us the love of God. Jesus himself wanted us to be convinced that this would be a demonstration of his love. God loves in such a way, how, an active way. Love is active, it moves towards the other. And in this way, it pays an ultimate price, the death of the Son of God. John chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 12. John chapter 15, I'm going to start in verse 12. Jesus tells his disciples this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, this is an interesting phrase, as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus show his love? He says, as I have loved you. How did Jesus love? How do we know the love of God? And then look at the next sentence. Jesus is alive right now, mind you. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. We're friends because we know what the master is doing. And what is the master doing? Well, he has come to lay down his life for his friends. The objective reality in history, rooted in history, what God did to demonstrate to the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, he moved toward the world by sacrificing that of greatest cost. And if the death of Jesus Christ for sinners that demonstration of love does not move you, then you have undervalued God himself. You have winked at and not realized the depth of sin, just how devastating it is, because this great cost, there has never been a greater payment in the history of the world. No greater bail payment to get someone out of jail. No greater sacrifice of effort, work, and perspiration to earn something on another's behalf. God loved the world by giving himself up. His death stands as a constant beacon over all of history of the love of God. The cross stands as a symbol forever if you ever questioned or wondered, does God love me? The Bible insists again and again, yes, he loved me, he died for me. Of course he loves me, he died for me. And this objective reality in history calls and beckons us to know the love of God. I said earlier, though, there were two great objective truths. It's not just the death of Christ, and Paul gets this. He says it's also his life. Jesus went to the grave for you, and he also overcame the grave for you. It's why in Romans chapter 5, he says, We have been justified by his blood, in verse 9, but much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved, in verse 10 at the end of it, by his life. The resurrection of Jesus. 
the resurrection of Jesus that will deliver us ultimately from the great enemy of death and the wrath to come is a fact in human history attested to by hundreds and hundreds of witnesses turning the world upside down. This very Jesus who ate and was touched and talked and sat with disciples and later ascended into glory, his resurrection stands as a beacon in time, in history, just like his death, that God loves us. 1 Thessalonians reflects on this in verse, verses 9 and 10 of the first chapter. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to do what? To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is evidence to Paul as he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, this is evidence to Paul that we can now wait on not a dead Savior, but a living one. You see, it would be a good thing if Jesus died to absorb the wrath of God for sin, but it might not give us confidence that we have hope for future because we are also going to die. As far as we can tell, people are still marching into the grave. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He died. I look around. Everyone else is still dying. How do we know that anything changed? How do we know that God loved us enough to not lose us? Well, we know, Paul's going to say, because Jesus lives. Jesus loves you enough to die for you, and he loves you enough to live on your behalf as well. And he invites you into his life. I can't wait until we get to the next number of chapters. There's going to be moments, where, especially in chapter 8, where Paul reflects on this reality of what is Jesus doing now? You ever heard that Garth Brooks song? What's he doing now? This is my little sister's favorite Garth song. We used to tease her all the time. We sing the refrain every time she'd come around the corner. What's she's doing now? That's, that's what he's thinking. Here's a great question. I cannot wait to revel in this. What is Jesus doing now? Because what he's doing now is saving us. Here's one little taste of this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The bodily Jesus right now ever lives to make intercession for us. God's death stands over all of history, reminding us that he loves us. And his resurrection and his present ministry stands over all eternity, reminding you that God loves you. If you ever are tempted to doubt that God loves you, remember that Jesus Christ who went before you right now stands before the Father advocating and interceding on your behalf. He can't forget you. He constantly thinks of you. He stands in the gap for you. He brings your needs to the Father forever. It's amazing that we ever doubt this. I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if he's for me. It's all he is is for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. All right, so I said that there is an unconditional nature to the love of God. And Paul says, whoa, look at this. None of us would even die for good people. Look how Jesus died unconditionally for those who hated him. Second, he said, these are points in history. If you ever doubt the love of God, remember Jesus died for you. And remember he rose and lives now for you as well. But finally, and this one's a little bit more dependent, I believe, on a gift from God. But I believe that Paul intends for us to see that knowing the love of God is a subjective in nature. That there is, in fact, an experience of the Spirit of God that is a gift of assurance. 
I want to be careful here, a couple caveats from the outset. This does not mean that every Christian will have the exact same experience of the love of God. Have you ever heard someone share their testimony and they sound like they just got wrapped up into the most unbelievable romance in history and you think to yourself, I don't know, I go to church, but I don't, I don't have that. I don't think that every single person has the exact same experience to the same degree. Second, I don't believe that every single Christian will have the same experience in the same intensity at all times. So you may say to yourself, well, I don't know, I'm not experiencing that right now, but let me tell you about 73. Let me tell you about back when I was in the dorm. Let me tell you the moment that I heard the gospel the first time at that conference. Let me tell you when I sang the song and I meant it. I believe that what God desires to do for you and for me, if you have come to Christ, if you've said, I know in history he died for me, I know that now he, he's raised to newness of life and lives for me, then what does verse 5 mean of Romans 5? Except that God wants us to experience his love. Hope doesn't put us to shame. You'll never be put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then he caps this very same idea, this love being poured into our hearts. He caps the same idea in verse 11 by saying, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of people are we? How do we know the love of God? We know the love of God because it makes us rejoice. We know the love of God because it subjectively reminds us, it beckons to us. Later, Romans might say something like this, that we've been given a spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And if you don't have this experience, if it varies in intensity, then I would still say to you, let's pray together. Let's reflect on his death. Let's reflect on his resurrection. Let's reflect on the unconditional nature of his love because God has given his spirit so that we could experience his love. We, in Jesus Christ, have not been given bare facts. Now, our faith is nothing less than bare facts. In history, in real time, we insist and assert that the Son of God came in the flesh, died a real death, and resurrected in newness of life. These happened, not symbolically, not in our minds, not theoretically. We insist on facts. And we insist that those facts are given by God to give us a subjective reality, a knowing, a sensing of his love for us. So that the most hardened of us the most suffering of us, the most difficult circumstances of us, at a moment God wants to meet you and for him to wrap you up so that you feel like a child again. It's not a girly thing. God wants to make men and women alike feel the childlike love and comfort of being wrapped up by a father. I'm saying to you, it's okay, I have you, I'm for you, I love you. No one tells a little boy, stop being so emotional there, enjoying your dad's love. But I think that some of us forget, we're so sophisticated, we're so thinking, we're so truth-oriented, we're so objective. Those things are real, but where are they leading you? And I so pray that more and more and deeper and deeper and on and on, that you would experience subjectively the love of God so that no matter what, came in life or what anyone said to you, you'd say, no, 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 I know. Well, someone might say, where is your God? I know. He's with me. He's for me. He's here. 
And it's that experience, that subjective nature, I believe, that is ours in Christ. So, can you sing the song? Do you have to kind of mumble? Jesus loves me, this I sometimes think. Or, has the unconditional nature of the love of God, has his objective death and resurrection, and has the spirit been poured out in your heart so that you cry out, Jesus loves me, this I know. That's my prayer for you. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would show us this love. You died in the past, but you still demonstrate You show now, here, presently, your love. I pray that you would bring a kind of experience to us that we would not have to remember back for those few moments when we believed that you loved us. But here now, capture us by the unconditional nature of your love. Remind us again the reality of your death and resurrection. And I ask, Spirit of God, would you dwell, rest, fall on us with such power, such convincing unction in us that we would never falter, that we could not be convinced of anything but your love for us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.